remember us? <laughs> no. Oh, well, okay. Um, is this thing on? <laughs> are, are, are you talking to the right side of it? I don't even know how to use this thing anymore. What do we do again? So, um, hello everyone. Welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. We, we got that part down. And then we have to do our next, what has now become a traditional thing, and explain why we've missed a couple of weeks of episodes yet again. This is traditionally where he blames me for missing episodes. So, that's only partially accurate. Okay. So, th- th- the episode we missed three weeks ago. Okay. That was probably more my fault. That was your fault. Because I was in a substantial amount of pain. Okay. I am in much less pain now. Yes. But I was in a, a substantial amount of pain. And a, a, as we have mentioned many other times, if we are not feeling at top physical form, it does not normally make for a good show. No, it does not. And it's particularly when you are not feeling at top physical form. Oh, just form. me. Well, you do not hide it as well as I do. I'm not saying I hide right. it well. I'm saying you hide it less well. Right. Okay. Okay, so you threw your back out and... And then you went to Florida. Yes. For two weeks. I did. Just before we got our first note. And you're never going to let me live that down. Nope. <laughs> I want to remind... It makes a really good story. I just want to remind you for a minute. You know, remember when we moved to this fabulous burb? Uh And I packed up the car and drove here with five animals and a teenager Mm -hmm. in my car by myself. In the rain. Barefoot. Uphill both ways. And we closed on our house and you emptied my car into this house. And then you went back to Ohio. And I was here during the last snow of the season that year. But I had no snow boots. Well, that wasn't my fault that you didn't have any boots. They were packed. Our movers had packed them all. Because it was April and I shouldn't have needed snow boots. And I was trapped in this house without any shoes that I could walk in the snow. I know. And and this is... And that snow actually stuck, unlike the snow you endured. This is a third world country. Where there are no stores, any. It, How it, would I have gotten least, there? It's a, at least a fourteen-hour drive to the nearest store. How would I have gotten there without shoes that could be worn in the snow? I didn't even have socks. Uphill both ways. I barefoot. didn't even have socks. I had to wait for the snow to melt in order to leave the house. Uphill both ways, barefoot. And who still has summer tires on her car, by the way? And. When are you going to fix that, too? <laughs> no, it's almost December. I might as well swap them out now. It'd be, yeah. I mean, if Since we were it in, snowed. It, well, if, if we were in Ohio, I would have had to have done it by now. Since they actually had snow that stuck. I know. We haven't had snow that stuck. And yet you still want to complain that I wasn't here for the snow. It makes a really good story. <laughs> Lies. It Lies. It makes a really good story. No, it does not make a good story. It does not. Anyway. Well, we've already told the story. So it was really good. Moving on. So while I was gone, there were two races. There were two races, but that is actually not where we're starting. 
Um, unfortunately, we're going to start on a down note because we got word this morning from uh, the folks over at Williams that uh, Sir Frank Williams passed away this morning at age 79. Uh, the statement that was released by the team uh, said that he had been admitted to hospital on Friday and passed away peacefully on Sunday morning surrounded by his family. Um, Frank, you know, he, he led one of the last true family Formula One racing teams. Oh, yeah. I mean... And, and, and that's what I think what, what he will always be remembered for is not just that he won one of the last true family racing teams in Formula One, but it was a championship winning family racing team. You know, went up head to head against Ferrari and head to head against Schumacher and won championship titles as a family team. And what I think is incredibly important is frank is a character under his own right mm-hmm. and he had it he had his own uniquenesses but when it came to that team and some of the success of the team in its heyday was truly a family affair mm-hmm. jenny was his you know, wife who's uh preceded him in death jenny was right there yeah um doing a lot of, especially after his accident, he was there. She was there doing stuff. And she was very much part of the team. Um, and the kids have gotten had gotten involved. And they sold the team last year. But still, it was Williams. And, I mean, Frank was such the heart of that team. And if you're not familiar with how Frank truly got started. <laughs> because his story is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, started... The, Originally, what was originally known as Williams Grand Prix Engineering back in 1977. Correct. Um, He had previously run cars in Formula 2 and Formula 3. Williams Grand Prix Engineering got started because Frank started buying old race cars and rebuilding them and selling them. But the best part about it was that a lot of times he was buying old race cars from drivers rebuilding them and selling them back to the folks that he bought them from in the first place. And by rebuilding them, he, we could re-say that and say paint them. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the business model worked. The business model worked. So, um, tried to commit to his own squad after, uh, well, he, he decided to go and, and spin up his own squad which was Williams Grand Prix Racing at that point. Um, the first time around, it failed after a, um, a partnership with a Canadian oil tycoon kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. So that's what led to Frank starting the own his own team, um, partnered with Patrick Headed as the technical chief. Um, Clay Regazzoni won the team's first victory in 1979 at the British Grand Prix. That had to have been a party. Mm-hmm. Um, it's first driver, it, first drivers and constructors championship double coming a year later when Alan Jones ended the season on top. 
Um, the team would go on to win championships with Keke Rosberg, Nelson Piquet, Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost, Damon Hill, and Jacques Villeneuve. And probably Nigel Mansell is probably the most famous Williams driver. I mean, yes, Damon Hill gets a lot because he's, yeah. he's a... He's it's the Ni- Nigel and, and Damon both, I think. But Nigel, I mean, he's been... Mm-hmm. And... Especially when, when you think about how much that team has achieved. And Frank's been confined to a wheelchair since 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't know that story, it was a, a car accident near Paul, near Paul Ricard because Frank apparently used to drive like a lunatic. And he pushed it a little bit too much and wrecked the car mm-hmm. headed to the airport. Um, and yet continued to lead the team for another almost 20 years yeah oh and um his wife passed away a few years back uh mm-hmm. i think it was due to cancer um but she is credited for getting him into the wheelchair and getting him to come out of the hospital yeah um there's a lot of stories that say jenny saved his life she saved his life and to some extent also jenny was running that team for a stretch after the accident mm-hmm. um and and we shared what was it two years ago um it was it was our cover art um was the pick the famous picture of Ginny on the podium hoisting the constructor's trophy yes yes one of, which was i think the first time a woman had been allowed to host or, or to hoist up and hold the tr- the trophy on the on the podium oh i mean for all intents and purposes she was leading the team Mm -hmm. even though frank led the team she was she was that that person Mm -hmm. um if you ever get a chance and you haven't already seen it you should definitely take the opportunity to watch the documentary williams Mm -hmm. um it's currently not available for free although i will tell you i would fully expect it to be free soon just from the standpoint of this is going to you know as, as the ripples go through um, but you can rent it from Amazon Prime currently. Yep. Um, we got a chance to watch it. I think we've watched it more than once at this point. Um, we watched it once on a plane. At least. Um, but it was fantastic. Um, really, mm. it's a heartwarming and... A huge uh, insight into the, the family, of the, family. the team, and you know Frank's relationship with Ginny. Mm-hmm. And Claire's relationship with her brothers and mm-hmm. Claire's relationship with Frank. Um, yeah. And no, you know, realizing that Frank didn't have much longer, it makes a whole lot of sense why Claire sold the team. And I, I, when you told me this morning that Frank had passed, the first thing I said was, I really hope that Claire got to spend the time she wanted to spend with yeah. Frank. So... Alas, you know, since we've done this podcast, we've lost some really big names in Formula One. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, That list is growing and it's tragic. It's also exciting because it does open the opportunities for new generations. And it's good to see that the sport continues forward. Um, yeah, but, but can death we... is really not the way for you really want folks to be moving forward. Um, but the, but that is, it's it's a guarantee of life. So yeah. But could somebody please wrap Jackie Stewart in bubble wrap? 
you know, he's still traveling. He's still running around. That he's man still is doing... so spry. I mean, I mean, he's certainly looking his age more now than about three years ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he was down with the Senna family in Brazil a couple of weeks ago, and and he's been all over the place. Well, somebody change his Energizer batteries and um, okay. just wrap him in a little bubble wrap. I'm, I'm kind of tired of this annual Who's Past episode. Yeah. All right. So other news. Other things to talk about. Positive news? Hopefully. Okay. At least something. I need a unicorn chaser after some, that. Well, I don't know if I've got a really great unicorn chaser. However, coming out of in Brazil in particular. Mm-hmm. And Max Verstappen's defense of his lead of the race, that he ultimately lost that that lead anyway. Um, a lot of questions about decision-making in Formula One and driving standards and the enforcement of driving standards in Formula One in light of that. Okay. Um, a lot of drivers have, have stepped up and said... Okay, if Max was allowed to do it, I'm going to start doing it. Oh yeah, you know, and and a lot of folks pointing out the fact that earlier in the season, we saw folks getting pushed off the track just like Max did, and there were penalties for it. Mm -hmm. But now it seems to be okay, and we don't seem to have a problem with it. So what's going on here? So the GPDA is has has been frustrated. Um, we do know that there were uh, discussions post-race in Brazil. There were discussions pre-race in Qatar. And apparently there were discussions post-race in Qatar as well. Whoa. And as a result, Michael Massey insists that the rules have been made clear and that everybody understands what the standards are supposed to look like. Okay. I'm not clear on the rules, and I don't know what the standards are because they've been so loosely interpreted multiple times. What Michael has said, and obviously we weren't in the meeting, so we don't know what the discussions were, but what he has said to us, he says, it's been made clear to them what is expected. I think the other parties, some of them agree, some of them disagree, and that's always with each and every one of them. They have agreed and disagreed all the way through. So we've given them some overall guidance, but also been very clear on the fact that each and every case will be judged on its merits. Um, When it was questioned as to whether or not the rules have been relaxed as of late, he said, I wouldn't call it more relaxed. It's looking at each and every incident on its merits. As we have done with each and every one, there's a panel of independent stewards. Contrary to what many people think, I'm not the one sitting there as judge and jury. We have a look. We have a panel of stewards that review each and every incident. And then, as we saw last weekend, they determine if it's worthy of an investigation. If they do, it gets investigated and then determine if there's breach or not a breach. Which, we've acknowledged this. That Mm -hmm. while, yes, Michael defines parameters. Right. And, yes, we know that the teams, they go yelling to Michael when they think that something has gone wrong. Ultimately, it's the steward's decision, not Michael's decision. But the stewards, let's not forget, are working off of the parameters that Michael has given them. Correct. 
So to some extent, he sets the tone. Correct. And I do wonder if the teams, because we're hearing radio to Michael during the race more and more these days, Mm -hmm. which I think is cool. Yeah. Um, I often wonder if the reason why we're hearing it go to Michael is because they don't have a direct link to the stewards room. So it's complained to Michael so that it gets to the stewards. Exactly. Yes, that, that, that is exactly what's going on. And they used to do the same with Charlie Whiting. Mm-hmm. That, that, that they would call Charlie and go, dude, you got to do something here. This is ridiculous. And hope that they would influence Charlie to pick up the phone and call the stewards and go, take a look. Yeah. Um, not to make a ruling. But where things, where Michael has now not helped himself. Uh-oh. So uh, Michael has been asked if, um, Max Verstappen's move in Brazil would have been treated differently if there'd been a different runoff in the area. Because remember, where that move was pulled off, that was a massive asphalt runoff area. Correct. Well, what if there was gravel there? Or maybe grass or something like that? And then Michael said, well, yeah, quite possibly, yeah, we, we, we might have looked at it differently. But you need to look at the whole situation and scenario, weather, runoff, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the problem right there. The track is outlined. Mm-hmm. And, you know, exceeding the limits and pushing someone beyond the outline, it should not, if you push somebody off the track, it shouldn't matter if it's a massive asphalt runoff or if it's a sheer cliff. You push yes. them off. That's Full the stop. problem. And I, by the way, I would say this if it was Max pushing mm-hmm. Lewis off or Lewis pushing Max off. Same and, thing. And, and and that's where I think, at least I've struggled w- with the decision that's happened, is that earlier on in the year, we saw somebody get pushed off the track. We saw it more than once. Mm-hmm. Somebody got pushed off the track, and there was a penalty given for it. And those were arguably, they got pushed off the track in what we would have called a racing incident. Mm-hmm. Like there Everybody were... looked around and said, that's a racing incident. Yeah. And then we go to Brazil... And it's pretty flippin' blatant. And, oh, no, that that's that's good. We're good. Oh, Not yeah. a problem. I think this is artificially enhancing the show, personally. I, I wouldn't say enhancing the show. It's enhancing say, the controversy. Well, well I was going to say, I would say possibly putting your finger on the scale. Yeah. But I don't know if I would say influencing the show. Because it's not making the show any better. It's just pissing people off. Yeah, that's possible. Um, and, and, and it shouldn't be case by case. No. Either I mean, either you're off the track or you're not off the track. Either you forced them off the track or you didn't force them off the track. That's if we're going to say you're not allowed to force people off the track, then don't let people do it. Exactly, and it doesn't matter what kind of runoff there is or not. So, the other area where there is a bit of controversy was the end of qualifying in Qatar. Okay. So what happened? And why there's there's been the questions and everything going on around that. So very end of qualifying, Pierre Gasly goes and starts his lap. Um, the curbs being what they are over at Qatar, broke his front ring and punctured one of his tires. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when the tire let go... He was already past the entrance to the pit lane. Mm -hmm. Folks were already on their hot laps, making their way around. 
he was now trying to push a disabled car home. Now, if you were watching qualifying and you were watching the timing board on the left, what you saw in those last 45 seconds or so of the qualifying session was a yellow flag, then green track all clear. Then a yellow flag, then green track all clear. Then a double yellow flag, then green track all. And and it was this rapid fire, yellow, green, yellow, green, yellow, green. And I don't know about you, but I was watching. I'm going, what the heck is going on here? And they're not cutting the video to show why we're going yellow and green, yellow and green, yellow and green. We know that there are some cars on hot laps, some that are not. And this is this is happening in sector three. So if you've got cars that are in hot laps and you've got a yellow flag that keeps getting thrown in sector three, that means it's going to screw with everybody still on a hot lap on the track if they don't get it cleared in time. Mm -hmm. So having some idea of what the heck is going on would have been really nice. But F1 TV decided not to show us that until it was too late. Okay. So... Some when the double yellow flag came out, and the double yellow flag, from what I have seen, and 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 it was a valid call for the yellow flag to get thrown for Pierre being on the track. Slow, he was a safety hazard, and for the double yellow flag, arguably, well, actually, that came out when Pierre had stopped. Mm-hmm. Now I don't recall whether Pierre had stopped before, or after the start finish line, but he had stopped on the straight. Because the car just would not go any further. So the double yellow flag, even at that point, made sense. However, it was only the double yellow flag that was flown. We didn't get the lighting system displaying that there was a double yellow. The GPS system at the track that the that uh, the teams use to monitor the, the flag status, that was never triggered. And because that was never triggered, the drivers apparently get an audible warning. Mm-hmm. That was never triggered. So the only thing that was triggered was the one marshal waving double yellow flags at the very last marshal post. Okay. Now, if you caught the pre-race prior to the Sunday race, when they showed all the replays and showed everything that was going on, good luck finding Even if you knew that that marshal post was there, oh. good luck finding that flag. Okay. It was almost impossible to see. All right. So we have a double yellow that's pretty hard to see. Max, of course, missed it. And we can discuss whether or not that's in air quotes or not. So Max missed it. Um, Valtteri, I believe he got a penalty off because there were three people called, to, three drivers called to the stewards. Max, Valtteri, and Carlos Sainz. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Carlos Sainz got away without a penalty because they did, looking at the telemetry data, say that he had slowed down significantly, which is what you have to do. Right. So he got away from from getting hit with the penalty. Valtteri got hit with the penalty um, for disregarding the yellow flags. And Max got the penalty for disregarding the double yellow flags. Got it. So the statement explaining the decision the stewards admitted there was some sympathy because of the lack of lights dashboard alert and audio signal but they said that the rules breach still took place 
According to Article 27.1 of the Sporting Regulations, it says that the drivers must drive the car alone and unaided. And Appendix H of the International Sporting Code states flags and lights have exactly the same meaning. They also added that Article 27.2 requires the driver to observe the International Sporting Code at all times. That code in Appendix H places the onus of responsibility of complying with flag signals clearly on the driver. So notwithstanding the fact the team argued that the turning off of the yellow sector on the FIA marshal system some 34 seconds prior to the driver reaching the yellow flag signified that it was play on, it was the driver's responsibility to take the appropriate action when entering what was a double yellow flag area. Which I don't necessarily, I don't disagree with that. Okay. Again, yellow flags and, and... that, that's why there's all these multiple different levels of warning system. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree w- with assessing the penalty. What I do have a problem with, not that we will see it change, is when you look at what actually occurred and the visibility that happened and the way that track was laid out and the, where that Marshall post was, it was almost impossible for the driver to see. This was not like in Monza when Lewis Hamilton blew past the yellow flag on... Uh, the pit lane closed sign. Yeah, or, yeah, oh, the pit lane closed when, when he blew past that. Totally different scenario. Um, because when they slowed it down, you could clearly see that Lewis had visibility of that. The only way that you could have picked this out was not only did they slow it down on the TV broadcast, but they magnified the Marshall stand because of all the lights and everything that was going on over there. The reality is, if Formula One was ever going to go back to this track, that Marshall stand is terribly positioned and needs to be moved. Okay, but I have a, a problem. Is, is is it around this idea that they have a 10-year deal and what am I saying that if we go back to this track? No, that's not my okay. problem. I just found it interesting that in the wording for defending the penalty on Max, it said that the onus is on the driver Mm -hmm. and a breach occurred Mm -hmm. and they must enforce it while sympathy while they have sympathy they Mm -hmm. must enforce it um when you push somebody off the track that's a breach that occurred right not not going there (laughs) seriously i'm I'm just suggesting that that's Two different ways to look at a breach has occurred. The the big difference, truly, the big difference in the two scenarios is one is a somewhat subjective interpretation of driving standards. Correct. And the other is a fairly cut and dry, we have safety signals that go up and safety signal comes up and there's not supposed to be any gray area of do you follow the safety signals that's the difference where the flaw is around this is again the fact that it was the one marshal post and that marshal post was not clearly visible and that in its own right is a safety problem well that's a safety problem i will grant there um I just do wonder 
if the reason that those three were the ones that got pulled in, if they did slow down in that sector, but not enough, and that's why they got the no. The the only one who slowed down was, and and they had to pull the telemetry to see it. But the only one who slowed down was Carlos. He was the only one that slowed. I yes. had heard slowed enough or significantly. Well, they they said that they could see a substantial slowing. Max did not. Okay. And and Max admitted he did not. Okay. And I think Valtteri did as well. That they didn't see it. They didn't it did show up on any of the systems. They did Therefore, not slow down. Did not exist. Yeah. Okay. Well. So that's why Max got the penalty. And Ma- Michael Massey says that the f- the flags were justified, and I agree with that too. Given the the safety situation that was going, it was a bad place for this to happen. Mm-hmm. But the, the, Michael Massey is correct. You had a disabled car initially posing a hazard as a slow moving which justify potentially the yellow flag the double yellow when the car stopped again justified so i i don't have a problem with that the thing that i really really have a problem with besides the the positioning of the stand is that we didn't get a decision on this until 45 minutes before the pit lane and the grid opened for the race. And that I think is pretty egregious because mm-hmm. that doesn't give anybody any sort of reaction time. I believe you were telling me that cars were radioing to the stewards to go, what position am I supposed to line well, up it, in? It wasn't the cars. It was Mercedes and Ferrari were in the wrong spot and had to swap places on the grid. Mm. because the provisional grid said one thing and the final grid said another. Oh, lovely. So give you an idea of the time. Okay, so qualifying finished at 6 p.m. local time. Summonses for the three drivers were issued between 8.37 p.m. and 9.40 p.m. So Two let, hours let's after. start there. Um, ask them to appear before the stewards the following afternoon between 1 and 1.45 so they didn't even go to the stewards until right before the race started. Right. So the decision was then published between 3.16 and 3.35 p.m. with the last coming just 45 minutes before the pit lane opened and the cars headed out to the grid for the race. So Michael Mossy explains. He blames us. Us? He blames us. He didn't call me. He blames us. He says it's our fault. So what he said, all of you have always asked for is more description and decisions rather than just saying this person is guilty or this person is not guilty. You actually want as much of an understanding as possible of the process that it was gone through. Sometimes if there are any similar types of cases, as you all see that the stewards obviously try to write their decisions be it last weekend or this weekend, any of them that have a level of nuance to them, they put that level of detail in them. As you are all aware, that takes time to go through them, draft them, write and rewrite. That's one part. The other part is that teams need to be given their opportunity to present their case. So if we look at, as an example, the weekend in Brazil, effectively in total over the two days, give or take round figures, Mercedes were presenting to the stewards for about two and a half hours. 
So you've got to put that into account as well as with sessions and everything else in between. So it's not straightforward. Sometimes I think the stewards would be happy to write just, this person has breached the rules and end of story. But then we will go back a few years and all of you said you want more description. You need to consider that when you hand your decision down, you have suddenly got appeal time limits and everything else that came that come into it as well. So the decision that is handed down, teams have to have their right of appeal. So it is all of those time limits. Now with the cutter yellow flag hearings and then being scheduled on Sunday, he said that's because the drivers weren't at the track on Saturday evening. He said it's obviously relatively late, them not being here long day, etc. So do it this morning, everyone's fresh. You've also got to think of offset time frames and everything else that you haven't taken into account in the time frame. And when people are available and so forth. And when people get here in curfews, you need to remember curfews cover this venue, for example, and that didn't end until 12 p.m. So when people are due to get here, that comes into the timing, which I can accept some of that. What I can accept is that for a yellow flag violation and what is pretty clearly a yellow flag violation, they should have been able to go and make the decision that they needed to summon the drivers within 15 minutes of the end of that session. Mm -hmm. Instead, it was two plus hours later. That's the problem I have. They could have started that process so much earlier and they didn't I can't argue with you I won't argue with you I agree with you and you know the the, the whole thing about providing more details in the decisions okay that's that's fair I I, I like the fact that we get more information and more detail in these decisions than just, yep, in breach your rules and move on. That's fair. But they still got attorneys around faster. I mean, if they're going to even consider this stuff, they've got to already know in that direction what rules they're going to refer to, where they're going to go, why that they even think that this is a problem before they've even decided to investigate it. That should be some level of baseline work that's already done to feed that decision paper. Even if it's not the, and I'm not saying that they're prejudging. It's just the, this is why we think we need to have an investigation in the first place. Well, I would argue, I would argue Mm -hmm. that with a yellow flag violation, they could have asked just for the telemetry. Why did they have to bring the drivers in to talk to the stewards? Like, give me the telemetry. Uh, yeah. Show me that you. we know we know there was a yellow flag condition. The argument's going to be made on the other side that, well, they couldn't see it. They couldn't do this. And mm-hmm. that's all fine and dandy. That's for appeal process. In car. But pull yeah. the in-car, pull the telemetry, and at least then you got a thumbs up, thumbs down on, did they breach it? Like, mm-hmm. Start with that. And, and I think what bugs me and what I think was truly going on and why there was such delay before they made that call was, one, there was a metric ton of confusion about whether or not 
they were flying a yellow flag where that yellow flag should have been, Mm -hmm. why it was only one marshal post in the sector as opposed to all of these others, why they didn't turn around and flip the systems like they're supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. and then how they were going to dig themselves out of the hole because they knew they were wrong. Exactly. And basically what they decided to do was say, yeah, well, there was a flag, you should have obeyed it, and and all the other stuff doesn't matter. Which... You know, to some extent, kind of begs the question of, well, why do you have all of this other stuff if you don't use it and then you're going to penalize drivers because you didn't use it in the first place? Exactly. So there's that. Christian Horner was very upset by the decision. I guess. And again, if you saw the pre race coverage and, and his interviews, if you're in the US or in the UK um, and saw Christian Horner's comments, Within about 10, 15 minutes after that decision came down, um, he was a bit heated over it um, to the point and, and got himself in a little bit of trouble that, you know, not only was none of the systems running, but because none of the systems were running, there was nothing to say that this wasn't potentially a rogue marshal throwing flags. Correct. And kind of insinuated that a rogue marshal could interfere with a race if they wanted to. Oh, my. Well, obviously, the marshal was really upset over this. And Michael Massey was pretty upset over this. And post-race, in light of those comments, Christian Horner was called up to the stewards um, to explain his his comments. And... um. He has apologized. He was given a warning not to do it again. Um, But he has since apologized not just to Michael Mossy and the stewards, but also to the marshal in question. Word is from both Michael Mossy and and from Christian Horner that the marshal in question was fairly upset over hearing um, Christian Horner's comments. Um, But... Christian Horner has apologized for it, Did said that he did not mean to insinuate, was not trying to insinuate that this marshal had gone rogue. Um, Just that it could be a possibility. Yeah. Um, and will be participating in the marshal training program sessions um, at least next year. And Christian Horner defends his quote-unquote straight-talking style. So you know what? After the last, oh, 16, well, no, let's, let's make it 18 years now in the U.S. Let's really translate straight-talking for what it really means to an American. Just saying? Oh, I was going to say, you think you think that by claiming straight talking, it gives you the right to be a dick. Um, we need to keep our clean rating. But that is like, you know, starting a, a conversation with, I don't want to offend anybody, yeah. but, or just saying. Straight talking is abused. Yeah. I'm calling it like I see it. Yeah. No. Now, um, 
Uh, it was I awful. Mean, and I get, I mean, on, on one hand, I will get Christian Horner is emotional and he was upset and he was angry. And if he had some emotional IQ, he would have said, I need to step away from this interview because I'm going to risk saying something that I will regret. Unfortunately, he did not. But that... It's a double-edged sword there because that's one of the reasons why Sky went to him. Of course Is they because, did. one, they knew he was going to be kind of raw in, in his emotions. And two, they also know that when in doubt, when you shove a microphone in, in front of Christian Horner, he's going to talk. Well, it's no different than shoving a microphone in front of Bernie. No, actually, that's not true. Bernie will give you an opinion. He will give you an opinion when he wants to. That was one of the things that was that that journalists used to talk about when it came to dealing with Bernie Eccleston was that interviews with him were few and far between. And when you got an interview with Bernie, it's because Bernie came to you, not because he was responding to one of your requests. Ah. Bernie, Bernie, totally different. When Bernie had something to get off his chest, he would get it off his chest. Whether or not anybody wanted to hear it was a completely different story. <laughs> well, Bernie had some doozies and, and things mm-hmm. he would say that needed to get walked back. Um, but Nicky Lauda was another one that he would not turn away any time a reporter came up to him and asked for an opinion. And his filter also didn't always work well. Oh, Nicky had no filter. Mm-hmm. It was delightful. I mean, we've got some great quotes from Nikki. We do. Um, and we have a few from Christian. You know, think bigger than your team. Unless, mm-hmm. you, un, unless it's his team and they're winning. Um, anyway. Microphone. Christian has apologized. I'm sure it will not be the last time Christian says something stupid. Yeah. Um, but I also get that he was emotional and raw. So he has apologized. We're moving on. I I see that. So the rumors have been picking up pace over the last three weeks. Actually, three weeks. (laughs) Three weeks. The rumors have been picking up over something going on. If we'll ever have a show again. Yeah, that too. Over something going on with the Volkswagen Group and Formula One. Really? So we know... And, and, and we've talked about this before, that in the discussions that have been happening for the last, what, three years now, mm-hmm. if not longer, there has been representation from the VW group around all the engine formula conversations. And a lot of the other discussions that have been happening around the rules packages and the direction that Formula One goes, there's been representation from the VW group mm-hmm. at all of those meetings, even though they don't participate. Okay. Things have been spinning up, and we've been hearing more and more lately that parts of the, that the VW group in general is getting more interested in Formula One and seriously talking about getting involved in Formula One and doing something. Interesting. Um, so, Joss Capito, who is the current team principal over at Williams. He came from, from Volkswagen. 
He came from, I believe, the Porsche uh, WEC. Or, yeah, WEC team. Okay. So the the championship winning team over there. Um, so he's got some familiarity over their motorsports programs and the things that they've done and, and, and their, their feelings about this. And Josh says that from what he knows of the organization, they would not be as deeply involved if they didn't think that something was going to happen. That they're there because they are seriously considering it and seriously taking a look. Interesting. So the the latest rumor that has come out, there, there's been two of them. Um, and, and we've heard the possibility that it could be Porsche. We've heard the possibility that it could be Audi. We've, heard, we've even heard both of them at some point possibly looking to make a move to participate in Formula One. Um, the latest that we're hearing is that the board has supposedly, there's been no public announcement, but the rumor is that the board has made a decision that yes, with the 2026 engine formula, it makes sense for the group to come in. It's going to be the Porsche brand that will do it. And they are looking for it. And they will only do it as an engine manufacturer. They're not going to be a full-on constructor. They want to go into a works deal with a team. The thought being that that is likely Red Bull and leveraging the powertrain work that Red Bull and the plant and all of those pieces and doing some sort of tie-in with all of that work that Red Bull is doing. Interesting. Um, the other rumor that has been flying around is possibly some sort of tie-up between Audi and McLaren to the point that two weeks ago, there was a rumor that came out from, well, it was a report that came out, I want to say it was from um, Build, one of the German magazines that is known for well they've got a questionable strike rate when it comes to these stories they had released a story that said that Audi had completed a deal to purchase McLaren outright and that festered for about a day before McLaren stood up and said um yeah, no <laughs> we no. haven't been bought the team's not for sale that's not what's happening um, there has been at least more solid rumors that seem to indicate that there is discussions going on between McLaren and Audi for some sort of technical partnership. Interesting. And possibly engines or something along those lines, but some kind of a partnership between Audi and McLaren. But that's about it. Really, it seems like the move is going to happen with Porsche. And the reason why Porsche and McLaren are not being put out there as potential partners is because they're competitors in the road car sector. Got it. So that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's not going to happen. Well, it's interesting. It's something we should keep our eyes on as things are changing and shifting. I mean, it'll be interesting to see more engine manufacturers hit the the grid i just worry about and wonder with the the fact that renault has no customers 
Red Bull mm-hmm. has its own set of, you know, it's got two teams it's got to find engines for and from whom. Um, you know, what is that going to do as you spread that thinner, but nobody's willing to come in as a constructor? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see some new constructors too, but, you know, one step at a time. But, you know, you've also got to remember that right now, the way it stands, every team that's on the grid, regardless of how they do, gets a portion of the prize fund. If we add a team... They would be outside that window. Well, it's not just that. I mean, even if it was two years down the road and we were in that window that everybody gets money, if we add a team, the last place team, whoever that is, won't get money from the prize fund. Correct. So at least right now, you're guaranteed that no matter where you place, you'll get money from the prize fund. If they add a team, you lose that guarantee. Right. But remember... You won't get as much as Ferrari gets, no matter where Ferrari falls. Well, there, there's that too, and right now you won't get as much as Mercedes gets, no matter where Mercedes falls too. I think even Ferrari still beats Mercedes. They do, but you got to remember that there are some sweetheart deals in place for um, Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, um, and Alpine, and probably McLaren as well. McLaren probably also gets legacy payments. I was going to say, I thought Williams got legacy payments. Williams does too. But okay. doesn't get nearly... Williams doesn't get nearly as much as Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari. Williams probably closer to the Alpine level. Yeah. All right. So, like I mentioned, McLaren has denied that there has been an Audi buyout. Not happening. Okay. And our last story is a bit of good news. Yay! Kind of. Oh. Um, Well, because it doesn't necessarily bring great races. But Barcelona has uh, agreed to continue to host the Spanish Grand Prix through 2026. Okay. Five more years. Um, the, The local Catalonia government has agreed to continue subsidizing the race mm-hmm. at least through 2026. But it doesn't bring great races. It often brings a race where people take each other out. That, that it does. I mean, we've had, since we've been watching, we've had at least two Spanish Grand Prix where a team has taken both drivers, they have taken each other out. Yeah. Twice. So there is action. It's just, different kind of action it's not paul ricard paul ricard could get off that's fair (laughs) off the calendar and no one would notice that's fair so this weekend we have the first ever saudi arabia grand prix re-race is one yeah remember well so yeah there's a lot of heartburn that's been going on not just about saudi arabia but the fact that we went to Qatar as well. Mm-hmm. And the Middle East in general. So I don't know if you caught Lewis Hamilton's helmet. Oh, yeah. I saw it. Which everyone freely admits was a very pointed and deliberate statement that was aimed right at the, the governments of Qatar. And if he's wearing it again in Saudi Arabia, it's aimed at them too. Oh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what some of our activist drivers... 
um, and those that are using their platform more are going to do Mm -hmm. um, because they do have a platform. I don't know if you know this, speaking of platforms, um, the Wall Street Journal in the past two weeks Mm -hmm. did an influencer uh, article in their Sunday magazine or something. Mm -hmm. And Lewis Hamilton was listed. And it was his story. Um, It was an interview with him. It was kind of a puff piece on him coming up and what he what he went through what they what they built and mm-hmm. what they were trying to do but it was really in light of some of the commission work that he's been doing the hamilton commission mm-hmm. and the 44 there's something else that he's doing too but he he's been in the sport for a significant period of time and his question which i think is a really valid question is why is he still the only driver of color on the grid mm-hmm and so he did, um, he put his money where his mouth was and did this uh, Hamilton commission to find yep. out why. And they that Martin Whitmarsh was leading. And he really exposed some systematic things that um, are affecting the talent pool. And a great line in the article was that, you know, Formula One tends to go back to where they, they know people. And so they recruit from the same three universities. Yep. And so it's, it was just, it was very, very interesting what he's doing. And he said that a couple of years ago, it never would have dawned on him to have used his success in winning races as such a billboard and a platform um, until he started to realize that he had a microphone that he didn't know he had five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and Toto Wolf got interviewed and said, you know, basically, if you're winning, you can show up any way that you want to show up and you can do pretty much anything you want. He goes, the guy that's not winning that shows up the track in a pink track suit is going to get laughed off the grid. But Lewis can because Lewis is winning. And it was very interesting. But, you know, we see Sebastian Vettel taking a stand. Well, yeah, but he's also got the cachet of the winning. and He he does, but... You don't see the young drivers that are just starting out that, that... then that's where Toto was going. But it was a very good article if you do have a chance to, to go back and, and, and read it. And have a subscription to the journal because... It, yeah, it's going to be behind their paywall. paywall. Um, but it was it was very, very interesting. A lot, of, a lot of credit to his dad. I will tell you, and it's our last piece, I'll tell you the story of what Lewis says is his secret to being such a late breaker. When he was in karting... Mm-hmm. Um, and his dad was helping him. His dad was trying to help figure out how to make him a better driver. Mm-hmm. So his dad would follow the other dads around to try to figure it out. And finally, that wasn't working. And so what he did was he'd go stand at a corner and he'd watch the fastest drivers, the fastest carters go by and figure out where they were braking. Mm-hmm. And then he would take Lewis to that corner and say, show everybody's braking here and go five meters closer to the corner and say, you break here. Hmm. And Lewis like... He's like, I hate it. It was in the story. I hated that conversation. And after enough time, he stopped. He would lose it on those corners as he was learning how to late break. Mm-hmm. But when he didn't, he's like, I got it. And it was like the light bulb came on. But that was his dad standing at those corners, figuring out how close he could do it and still make the apex and and do that. That was like incredible work. But then think about what he had to do well, you you listen to 
some of these drivers talk about the things that their dad would force on them while they were qualifying. Number of drivers who are like, yep, dad refused to buy wet tires for my cart and force me to race in the rain on slicks. And that's why I'm so good at racing in the rain. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> you hear stories like that. It's oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it was that. And that was just so it was so cool. But it was cool to hear him explain in credit his dad's vision for, you know, what he could do. And it was like, no, everybody else is breaking here. You're going to break there. And then he was fast and that's how you win. So it was, it was a good article. I recommend it. All righty. On that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.